Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. almost entirely doctrine, straight doctrine. Uh, We're nearly to the point that a turn will come in the book of Romans, and then it begins to address, now here's how the people of God live. Um, I'm I'm anxious to get to that part. I'm I'm loving this section of doctrine, um, but I am feeling in my soul the the getting ready to preach the section that is about the practical application of day to day. So know that that is coming. But there are a few more gospel truths um, that God wants us to know that are here in chapter 11 before we make uh, that transition. So we're going to start in verse one, and I'm going to read the first 16 verses this week, and then we'll pray. So please begin with me in verse one. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? how he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. Let's bow and go to the Lord. Our great God, we do now very solemnly ask that you will teach us. We ask God that you would lead us to arrive at the truth. Father, I, I pray, I pray, oh God, that you'll have mercy on me in this awesome, daunting, and terrifying task of preaching your word. I ask God that every one of us in here will worship by receiving your word. Father, I pray uh, that you will give help that we will understand. God, I pray that the truths that are here, you will bring us to see and to see their value, to see their weight, to see why they matter. But Lord, we also know that you have a way of working that sometimes we're talking about one thing and you're addressing in our lives something else. I, also, I ask also, oh God, that you would do that today, that Lord, you would send your spirit to so move and so work that none of us leaves here the same, but Lord, that we are drawn closer to you, purified, transformed, awakened, quickened, stirred, encouraged, convicted, challenged, helped grown, please accomplish it, God, for the glory of your name. And please have mercy on our little ones in the next room as they, they learn your word as well. We pray it will do the same. We love you, O Lord, and we pray this through Christ. Amen. Mr. Edwards became smitten with Miss Grace 
the lady who worked at the post office of Walnut Grove in one of the greatest television shows of all time, Little House on the Prairie. Uh, Mr. Edwards would find reasons to go stop by the post office just to see Miss Grace, but he couldn't read or write or get mail himself, and so he was running out of excuses uh, to stop in there. He also was not making the headway that he wanted each time that he stopped in. So he decided to uh, try something. He had Laura help him um, write a, an, the address on an envelope, and he took some blank pages of paper folded them up, dabbed a little perfume on the paper, stuffed it in the envelope, mailed it in a different city so that it would arrive at Walnut Grove. He went to the post office a few days later and Miss Grace told him that he had a letter and she handed it to him, noticing the smell of the perfume wafting off of it. And so Mr. Edwards sat down where he knew that she could see him and feign to read this letter from a mysterious sweetheart. His ploy, of course, was to try to make Miss Grace jealous. And it worked. This man that she once had no desire for suddenly became desirable in her eyes when she saw that someone else desired him. The reason why it worked is because of something in our fallen human nature. We do not value According to, what, according to what people and objects truly and actually have. Our sinful hearts will take mud and make idols. And at the same time, we will have words of life presented to us and we will despise them by not seeing their real value. This is why Jesus addressed what our hearts treasure over and over again, told us to, to value that which is eternally valuable as our great treasure. And it is a regular human thing for us to fail to value something until we see someone else value it. Watch children. Watch, uh, watch toddlers in the nursery. I serve in the nursery once a year, okay? Just taking a little turn there. I, I, I wear the battle scars for the rest of the year there. Uh, when you're in there, it, it is enough. Sometimes it seems that a whole year has passed in that 45 minutes. You're in there and you're, you're observing human nature and what's going on. Gives me illustrations for an entire year there. But what will happen is there might be some random object, a yellow Lego block laying on the floor. Nobody wants it. It's worthless in their eyes. Until, <laughs> until one of the children comes and picks it up and suddenly that yellow Lego block is more precious than the ring of power itself. And a scene begins to unfold that looks like Frodo and Gollum battling it out at Mount Doom. And I like to pick aside the underdog and cheer for him, uh, take bets on who's going to win. Just kidding. Maybe not, maybe not. Okay. <laughs> what is happening in that moment is the jealousy principle. We, we sometimes do not value something until we see someone else value it. Well, in a work that may seem odd to us, God has actually ordained to use jealousy in order to draw souls to himself. Now, we can say that as a blanketed statement, but there is a specific way that chapter 11 is applying this to the nation of Israel. That, that God has in his providence worked that there will be divinely inspired jealousy that he uses to bring this group of people that he has decided to set love on to one day draw to himself. We, we, we started chapter 11 last week. We noted there are uh, five divisions of the text. We started the first point last week. Uh, God has not rejected Israel. We saw that there were three subpoints, three truths that are taught in that section. Letter A, God has not categorically rejected Israel. Letter B, he has saved a remnant. We pick up with letter C this week. What of the rest? So he has not totally rejected the nation. He has saved a remnant. We talked about that, a small portion. So what of the rest? Letter C says the rest were hardened. Notice verse seven there as, as we start this section and work our way down. 
what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. Uh, what is Israel seeking? What is he referring to there? Uh, the answer is righteousness. So part of the reason we know that is because he addressed that back in chapter 10, the end of chapter nine and the beginning of chapter 10. They have been pursuing righteousness, but they have been pursuing it in the wrong way. If you remember us covering that point, they have been pursuing righteousness, a right standing with God. They have been pursuing their security in eternity by their own merits, their own strength, their own deeds. Um, this is just not possible. We cannot amend for our sin by our own strength. We must rely on God for forgiveness. Israel sought righteousness in their own way, not according to the scriptures. And so they missed it. All of that to say, so they missed it. But not all of them missed it. Verse seven, those who were chosen obtained it, the it there being righteousness, right standing with God. They obtained it how God chose them to open their eyes and bring the new birth upon the hearing of the gospel. He chose to do this to a remnant. But what of the rest? Look at the text. You notice that the Bible does not apologize for it. You notice that the Bible does not try to spin it to make it sound better. You are just shown the work of God and we are to submit and call it righteous, knowing that it is righteous. The rest were hardened. And to make sure that we see that all of this is according to the plan of God, um, Paul then quotes three Old Testament passages. So the next verses, 8, 9, and 10, those come from three places in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 29, Isaiah 29, Psalm 69. But you may remember that back in chapter 9 and chapter 10, that there were other passages that were quoted as well, saying the exact same thing. Um, though, the, though, the, uh, though the people of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved and, and continued on. Numerous passages have been quoted to show there's a point. This isn't out of nowhere. This isn't new. This isn't a, a kink being thrown into God's secret purposes and God's now uh, trying to react to what's happening. No, this was prophesied um, at some point in the, in the message this morning. I'm intending to show you Deuteronomy 32. That was spoken 3,600 years ago and you can see it being unfolded today. Okay, this has been prophesied from a long time ago and there are an abundance of scriptures that show this. In Matthew 21, Jesus told the parable of the landowner who rented out uh, his vineyard. If you remember this one, uh, but the, the, the owner sent messengers to go get the rent that was due to go get the fruit that he was owed like God sending his prophets to Israel to turn their hearts back to himself. But what did they do to the prophets? What in the parable, what happened to the messengers? They were killed. The owner then sent his son. What did the uh, renters in the parable, what did Israel do with his son? They killed him. Jesus ended that parable by asking, what will the owner do to the renters? And the response, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. When he said that, the religious leaders objected and Jesus said, did you never read the scriptures? And then he quoted the stone, which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. And then he followed it up with this explanation. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. In one sense, a lot of Romans 11 is Paul uh, expounding upon that one parable and the explanation that Jesus gave. So who, who are the people that the kingdom will be taken away from? Israel. Who is the people it will be given to? The nations and tribes and languages of the earth. But what then of Israel? If the kingdom is taken away from them, what then of Israel? Some are chosen, a remnant, and the rest are hardened. Scripture's filled with prophecy that foretold this. If you look at verse eight, walk through the ones that Paul quotes here. God gave them a spirit 
of stupor. Eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. Part of the judgment is that he has blinded their eyes, but for a particular reason. If you are going to be shown beauty and you call beauty ugly, you call it abhorrent, God may give you over to a way of seeing that you are unable to recognize the beauty. If God shows light and someone calls it darkness, God is able to give them over to where they actually do think of it as darkness. If God shows light and a person squints their eyes and says, I don't see anything, God can give you over to a way of living. Your eyes are squinted all the time. The point being that there is a giving over. There is a, there is a hardening, but it is a hardening that is a reaction to resistance that is being addressed here. Uh, the, this, this, this kind of language is all over the Bible. Eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. Jesus said this just all the time. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus quoted that, that, that phrase from Isaiah over and over again. They have eyes but cannot behold. They have ears but it is not registering. If words of life are coming and a person resists and resists and resists, even though it makes sense to them, God can give them over to a way of hearing and thinking where it does appear as total foolishness. And these people are responsible for their blindness and deafness. So, so how, how is that the case? That is some of the mystery here, but you need to understand in this part that we're talking about, it is a judgment it is a judgment as a reaction. This is a divine hardening. God, God is not taking good people and making them bad. Okay. It, never in history has God ever given um, any, any mere human something worse than what they deserve. There's only been one time in all of history that someone received worse than they deserved. That was the Lord Jesus. And he volunteered for the work of the cross. But God never gives people worse than what they deserve. He's all the time giving people better than what they deserve. What this is talking about, though, is a divine hardening as a judgment. The explanation continues. Look at verse nine as he quotes another place. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Retribution is to be paid back according to what is deserved there. Y your table, it's poetic language here. Um, let their table become a snare and a trap. A, a table, your table is supposed to be the place of provision, eating, enjoyment, fellowship. You know, there's, there's a reason why with, with, with fellowship, we ask someone to, to come and, 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 and to have a meal with us. Your table is supposed to be something like this. Okay. So just like you might think of your bed is supposed to be a place of rest. Well, what David prays against the wicked in Psalm 69 is that their table would be become a snare and a retribution. I think it might be similar poetically to saying something like your bed's supposed to be a place of rest. Uh, may their bed become a place of fretful anxiety. That would be a poetic way of speaking to, to, to ask God to bring judgment on them. So Psalm 69 is another of the messianic Psalms written by David. We had a good example in our call to worship this morning. Psalm 16 is a messianic Psalm by David. So when uh, David said there, you will not allow your, your Holy One to undergo decay. Okay, well, who's that referring to? Jesus. That's referring to Jesus and the resurrection, okay? And so what Psalm 69 is, is it's David praying a divinely inspired prayer against his enemies. Be very cautious when, if you pray against your enemies. The, the, the Bible shows that it can happen. Be very careful that you not be praying against people of God. David's enemies were God's enemies they were resisting the one who was anointed by God to be king. There was a way that God answered David's prayer in his day, in a partial way. The fullest realization, the full realization 
is in Christ. The enemies of the Lord Jesus will find their beds to betray them and their tables to ensnare them. The point is that David is praying judgment on the enemies of the Lord. And in our own day, Psalm 69 is being answered. Turn on your news, study history. Psalm 69 is being answered before your eyes. The enemies of the Lord Jesus, and in this case, it is applied to the nation of Israel, are being given over to judgment. Verse 10, let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. That phrase, bend their backs forever, refers to a, a posture of defeat and remaining there throughout eternity. So again, poetic kind of language there. You may think of it like this though. The sons and daughters of God, those who are in Christ, bought by his blood, we bow our knee. We do bend our backs. Uh, now, in times of worship and in the age to come, we do it in times of worship. But understand this. We bend the knee, we bend the back, and then we rise. We rise and we walk. We walk with our shoulders back and our heads lifted, not in arrogance, but in dignity as the sons and daughters of God. And you will do this in the age to come, but not so the wicked. They will bend their backs and will never straighten up. They will bend their backs and will never arise. Now, I'm not saying that that is literal. Is it possible? Yeah, it's, it's possible. This is, but this is poetic language. That's a way of referring to their defeat and groveling, which will never be uh, removed. They will stay in this posture before God of defeat, subjection as enemies and stay there forever. What these verses are showing is that what has happened and what is still in our day happening to Israel was prophesied. This isn't out of nowhere. Um, and again, I, I remind, we know that it is maybe an uncomfortable kind of thing to talk about a people group and talk about their sin and, and point out errors that are there. We're talking about the nation of Israel and pointing out disobedience and judgment. But one of the, you know, so we approach it humbly with a spirit of caution as Paul tells us to do, do not be arrogant, okay, in your own eyes. But understand this, God is using the nation of Israel to preach gospel truths to the world. He is demonstrating things through using that nation. As you study history and as you see wave after wave of persecution against that group of people, you are seeing Romans 11 and these various Old Testament prophecies that God said would happen, they are unfolding. I mean, how many wicked men of history looked at that nation and said, I will, I will wipe them off of the earth. It has just happened over and over again. And one of the things the scripture shows is every time that that has happened, it is part of the judgment. It is part of what God has sent against them. And God is demonstrating gospel truths to the world like resist the Lord Jesus and your table will become a snare and a retribution to you. Uh, point number two, as we come to the next paragraph, verses 11 to 16 there. Point number two is this. Israel's rejection of Christ has been God's occasion to extend grace to the Gentiles. Now, in this paragraph, I see four truths that are taught. I'll walk you through them, A, B, C, and D. Here's letter A. Israel's transgression means riches for Gentiles. If you notice verse 11 there and look at it again, I say then they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now we're going to save that phrase to make them jealous for here in a little bit. But the first phrase, um, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. God has used... 
Israel's rejection of Christ as the occasion to extend the gospel to the nations. And the Holy Spirit is accompanying the message of the gospel with the new birth, with awakening. So, so think of it like this. It has been God's purpose that he is going to save souls from all the tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations. How God would do that could have come in a thousand different ways. God in his providence could have written all kinds of different ways that it could have come about. But God in his sovereignty has chosen for it to come about like this, that Israel's rejection of Jesus has become the occasion that God used to do it. You may remember a couple months ago, us looking at the parable of the banquet or the parable of the feast. Uh, there was a man throwing the great feast, a great banquet, and he sent out the invitations uh, to the kind of people you would expect representing the invitation into the kingdom, coming to the nation of Israel. But one after another made excuses for why they would not come. And so the great man said, then go out to the highways, the byways, go to the lame, the sick, the poor, the nobodies in the eyes of the world, the ones that the elites would scowl at and invite them because my house will be full. I've set a table. The seats will be occupied. I am hosting a great banquet. Israel has rejected the invitation into the kingdom to their shame. And God has used it as the occasion to then go to the nations. And this is what you see. You look around. This is what is happening. Um, I am hearing reports coming out of China of the church absolutely exploding in growth. There's a lot I want to tell you about that at a time we're not being recorded, but absolutely exploding um, in growth. God is going to the nations and he is filling his kingdom. Well, here's letter B. Israel's obedience will mean greater riches for Gentiles. Now, now watch, watch the contrast here. Letter A was Israel's disobedience results in grace to the Gentile. Letter B is Israel's obedience will mean even more riches for the Gentiles. L look where this is said. Look at verse 12. Now, if their transgression, speaking of Israel, Israel's transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Look at verse 15. He says something exactly the same. For if their, Israel's rejection, means the reconciliation of the world, what will their, Israel's acceptance be but life from the dead? All right. We're entering some ground here in chapter 11 where there is a great deal of discussion over what it means. Let me tell you the part that is safe and there's no debate over, okay? So just like really clear, simple way of saying it, okay? Here's a paraphrase. If Israel stumbling and failing resulted in grace being given to the world, there's a lot more grace that will come to the world when Israel turns to God. Okay, so that's straightforward. That's, that's not debated. But here is where some different people have some ways of looking at it. So I'm, I'm going to tell you what it is, and I'm going to show you what I'm, I'm convinced of. So first, some believe that this is saying that throughout history, so for the last 2,000 years, throughout history, when those elect Jews, those of the remnant, when they come to faith in Christ, that it results in blessing to the world. So in the few that, that come little by little, there's blessing that comes to the nations. How does that blessing come? Well, people take guesses. Things like if a Jewish person becomes a Christian, they are able to tell the rest of us who did not grow up Jewish a whole lot of insights into the Bible and to uh, teachings of the Old Testament. So, so for instance, in 2020, whenever I preached through the Lord's Supper, I preached six messages on the Lord's Supper. Um, in several of those messages, I taught about feast from the Old Testament. I got my information from Jewish Christians. 
That's who I researched because they grew up celebrating the Feast of Booths. They grew up celebrating the Passover and they then teach the world these beautiful, deep, wonderful insights into these things that they have an inside track for. So there are some um, who are saying that's what this is referring to. So it, it could be. Um, but, but, but by the way, you know, if, if that's the case, I don't, you know, so I'm going to tell you that it's the next one that I'm convinced of, but it may very well be that, that there's a way in which it is both. It may very well be that as little by little, that kind of thing is bringing blessing. But here's the second. There are others, and this is the position I'm convinced of, who believe that chapter 11 is showing us that there is coming a day when there will be a great and wide sweeping repentance among Israel as they embrace Jesus as their Lord, Savior, and Messiah. So when we come to verse 26 specifically, we've got a little bit of time to get there, uh, I'm, I'm gonna build an argument. I'm gonna build an argument from chapter 11 to tell you um, that I believe chapter 11 is speaking of the, a coming great and massive repentance, something that will happen in an abundant kind of way of Jews all over the world who turn to Christ. I'm convinced of this um, in part, uh, in large part from chapter 11, uh, all the way through. I think this is referenced numerous times, but there are also some things we get from uh, some of Jesus's teaching from the book of Isaiah, and then some big stuff from the book of Zechariah. So when we come to 26, I'll be sharing more of those things. But what this believes is that when Israel repents and embraces Christ, that it will result in tremendous blessing to the nations of the earth. So the idea is a lot of grace has come to Gentiles by Israel's disobedience a lot more grace, a lot more souls will be saved. The church will be built stronger when Israel repents and comes into the right relationship with God. Now, what does that mean? How would those riches come? Well, there's no place in chapter 11 where that would be addressed clearly. I think there may be some hints in the prophets, places like Isaiah and Zechariah, it may be that Jewish people will do a great deal of evangelism. It may be that the example of Israel repenting and coming to God proves an example to many others. It may be that if Israel is in a right standing with God and peace with God, that maybe there is more blessing that comes on the earth. But consider this, the nation of Israel the people of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on the earth in this day, they are not now the light to the world that God intended for them to be. God designed them to be in the original design. In the Old Testament, there were moments when they fulfilled what they were supposed to. So you notice in the Old Testament that there are times where David is interacting with some kings from surrounding nations, and those kings they give honor to the Lord because of their relationship with David. In other words, David was able to be an evangelistic influence on them. There's that occasion of the queen of Sheba in the Old Testament that I think represents the, the great picture of what Israel was supposed to be. Israel was in a place under Solomon's reign of order and wisdom and law and, and uh, righteousness. And I, I know that's a relative kind of thing, but of God's blessing on the nation and the queen of Sheba from a faraway land heard of the wisdom of this nation. And she traveled. She traveled with this massive entourage and caravan, bringing great riches. And she came to ask Solomon questions about life and the world she, she saw the glory of the wisdom, the law that God gave them, saw the glory of the Lord himself. Israel shined as a light. That's what it was supposed to be all the time. But repeatedly, Israel fell short and they actually caused the nations around them to blaspheme, we saw back in chapter two. But if you think of it, when Jesus, the Son of God, Messiah came, 
Israel had the opportunity at their fingertips to be restored, to be restored to a place of peace with God, to be restored to that position they were supposed to function in, in showing light to the world. Israel, if they would have embraced Jesus, would have been the original missionaries, would have been the ones leading the way for the gospel to go out into the earth. Well, and indeed, in the earliest days, the church was comprised entirely in the beginning of Israelites. But then a change came as God began to gather in the Gentiles. God is blessing the world right now. He is blessing the world by spreading the gospel. But how is he doing it? Not by Israel leading the way. Not by Israel being the churches, the global churches, primary missionaries and teachers. The church is largely comprised of Gentiles. And God is taking people who were once nobodies in terms of prestige, once not a nation. And he's raising them up and sending them out to go to the ends of the earth to make the gospel known. It could have been the case that Israel would have been the ones to have the beautiful feet. Remember what I'm talking about from chapter 10? Beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of the gospel. Okay. Israel could have had this place of glory, this place of prominence, beautiful feet, bringing the beautiful message. But instead, they rejected Christ and so now God is bringing the gospel to the earth, but he's doing so through the Gentiles. But I believe what the text is saying is that there is going to come a day when that changes, when Israel will be put in their rightful place, peace with God, and it will bring blessing to the world. So study those things on your own, study chapter 11, come to conclusions, leave room for the argument that I'll build at verse 26, but study them on your own. Here's letter C. God is working to make Israel jealous. Uh, go back to verse 11 and look at that phrase again. But that by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Look at verses 13 and 14, where he says there, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry of somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen and save some of them. God is saving Gentiles because he wants to, but in his plan, he has brought it about in a particular way that the saving of Gentiles is also serving another function. It is serving the function of making Israel jealous. Now this again is fulfillment of prophecy. So David here is not, uh, excuse, David, excuse me. Paul here is not quoting scripture, but he is referencing scripture in verses 13 and 14. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, you can turn there if you want to, but I'm going to read it out loud. In Deuteronomy 32, which is uh, the song of Moses, the song of Moses. All right. So it's a song of celebration and things, but included in the song of Moses, there is some prophecy concerning Israel's future. So you can look at Deuteronomy 32 written 3,600 years ago, written about 1,600 years before Jesus would come to the earth. And you can see ways that the Bible is tied together, separated by thousands of years, things that God said would happen. Well, in Deuteronomy 32, if you start in verse 19, watch this little section. The Lord saw this, referring to Israel neglecting God. Okay. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. He's saying that Israel provokes him to anger. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. Watch this. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. You see what happens there? God says Israel's idolatry has provoked my jealousy. 
I will provoke their jealousy. I will set my love on a people that's not a people and I will stir their jealousy. And then Romans 11 comes back to say, and God is going to use that jealousy to bring them back to himself. Think it through. Not all jealousy is bad. That's one of the places we need to start. We, we, we all know that there is a kind of jealousy that is sinful. So sometimes when we hear the word, we instinctively jump to think that all of it is. No, there's, there's a kind of jealousy that is righteous. In fact, I wouldn't just say it's allowable. I would say it is demanded. Okay. God is jealous for his glory. Okay. Good jealousy is when you want what is rightfully yours. Okay. All worship, all affection, all adoration belongs to God. If you go worship money, you, you are provoking God's jealousy because that worship belongs to him. Husbands, when you don't want another man to flirt with your wife, what is that? Righteous kind of jealousy. Of course, this can be misconstrued. Don't, <laughs> don't, but there is a righteous kind of jealousy. The Holy Spirit is going to use jealousy amongst Israel to draw them to salvation. Like the child in the nursery who was uninterested in the yellow Lego until another little kid picked it up and suddenly they saw someone else desires this and so they desire it. God is doing something peculiar if you think about how uncanny it is, here we are, a bunch of Gentiles from the nations, you go, you follow your, your ancestry back far enough, you will come to idolaters. We, we are a people that once lived crude, abhorrent kinds of lives in our history. And here we are, a bunch of people from the nations, and we love the Jewish Messiah. We have salvation. We have eternal life. We have hope and it's because of Israel's Messiah. We love him. They reject him. And what God is saying is that the day is going to come where that confusing aspect, that mystery, their eyes are open and they will look on him whom they should love and they will want him. They will have desire for him. Now, again, here's a question from interpreting this. And this is, this is tied with that. I told you there are two possibilities uh, with the last one about how does blessing to the world come? Well, how you think of that will also affect of how you think of this part, the jealousy. So is this saying that as Jewish people are saved for the last 2000 years and today, that when they get saved, it's because they see uh, other people love Jesus and they're drawn to it by that? It's possible. It may be that verse 14, Paul's referring to that because it, it, it is at least in one sense that he is referring to the possibility of a present tense from Paul's perspective. But it also could be that this is referring to a large kind of way in which there is an awakening, there is a jealousy, and there is a repentance towards the end of this age. So that is what I believe the text is primarily referring to. I don't doubt that throughout history, there are Jewish folks who come to faith in Christ in that kind of way. But I think the text is showing a large kind of way at the end. They will see our hope, our security, our joy, and that our joy comes from the Jewish Messiah. And they will say, but he's ours. And they will want him. And they will want him. We actually have a biblical example of this from the Old Testament to help us understand this. It's another one of these pictures from the Old Testament that is entirely um, intentional by God. There was a time when David was the rightful king, but an evil man seduced the heart of the nation. You remember this? There was an evil man who lied about David and promoted himself and he stole the hearts of the nation to love him. Do you remember who the man was? You had his name introduced to you today in our scripture reading in 2 Samuel. Absalom. 
one of David's own sons. Absalom went to the city gates and he would stand there. And as the people would come to, to hear uh, their court cases and ask questions and inquire, Absalom would lie about David, but promote himself so that the people came to despise David and love Absalom. I believe that is an intentional picture, by the way, of how Satan came to mankind and lied about God and stole hearts to reject God. But there came a point that Absalom then launched his revolt against David. And because he had won the favor of the masses, the people supported it and did not resist. And so when Absalom made his revolt against the throne, David and those faithful to him, they left the land. They crossed the Jordan. They left the land. Absalom then came to power. Absalom and David's men then came into a battle and Absalom was defeated and killed. And then now here comes the question. What now? What now? Israel rejected their king. Their new king is dead. Now what? Where do we go from here? David is the rightful king. And everybody knows that, by the way, it was common knowledge that God had anointed him as the chosen king. So what should happen now? Well, David's not going to come back into the land unless there is acknowledgement, unless the people will receive him as their king. So David's men sent word into the land of Israel, into the, the elders, and they said, will you receive your king? Will you come make David king, restore him to the throne? And so they do. There's this, there's this really incredible scene where masses, multitudes, thousands, they journey to the Jordan River in order to welcome David as he comes across the Jordan and then they accompany him into the land. It was a way of demonstrating their allegiance. The trumpets were blown. David is king. They acknowledged this. They go to meet him and they come back into the land. But part of the drama of that day revolved around the fact that the northern tribes of Israel received David before Judah did. The northern tribes embraced David and made him king while Judah was still holding back. Now you remember, David was of the tribe of Judah. This was their people. If anybody should have been the first, you know, they shouldn't have rejected him in the first place. But if anybody should have made him king, restored him, it should have been Judah first. But the northern tribes did, and then word was sent to the elders of Judah, why are you the last? to embrace the one who is of your own tribe. And it moved them. It worked. Judah showed up late to the party. And then when they came, a fierce, heated argument broke out when Judah said, we have more claim to him than you do. You were the last there. He's of your own tribe. And now you want to claim him as your own. Jealousy played a role in receiving their king. Jealousy helped to stir them to want him. And so it will be with Israel. Christian, you got to think what an odd thing it is. Every single year, millions, millions of Gentile Christians pour into the little bitty nation of Israel. It's a place a quarter of the size of the state of Indiana. Millions of Gentile Christians from around the world speaking different languages pour into this little Jewish nation just so they can walk the steps that Jesus walked. And they can go sit at the Mount of Olives and these Christians will weep as they consider the Olivet Discourse and they'll, they'll walk the road that Jesus took to the cross and they'll weep overcome with, with, with worship in all of this while a Jewish guide who doesn't believe in Jesus leads them. Is that not an odd thing? They'll go there. There'll be Jewish store owners, Jewish guides, Jewish uh, tour bus drivers again and again and again. This is an odd thing. And I think what scripture is saying is that the day is going to come that it works. 
that there will be an opening of the eyes. He's ours. We have more claim to him and they will want him and they will receive him as their king. They will embrace him and it will result in riches to the world. Christian, I'm bringing it to the application here. Christian, you're a part of something bigger than you. You're a part of something bigger than you. Jesus is building his church and he intends to use you in the process. Grace has come to you because of Israel's disobedience. And now God wants your life to help others come. And that includes the nation of Israel. Christian, joyfully make people jealous. Christian, make people jealous by the hope that you have in your heart. Make them jealous by the joy and the security that you have, that sense of peace and satisfaction, that contentment, that it is well with my soul, that your heart knows and owns as you show to the world. Your witness matters. Your testimony matters. Let your light shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God intends for your life to shine with something that is beautiful and attractive that souls are drawn to you and scripture is saying that among those souls should be those of the nation of Israel. And if you're with us and you've not turned to Christ, recognizing that you need this salvation, this security, this hope, this forgiveness of sins, we plead with you to see that this is your greatest need to embrace Christ. Make him your king, receive him as your king. And that's the basis of our observance of the Lord's Supper. When we partake of the, this ordinance that Jesus gave us, we are remembering the great act of history. We are remembering that work which has saved us from hell, which has given us eternal life, which we receive by trusting in him. Um, if you have turned to Christ... If you are a Christian who is following after him and you have been biblically baptized, we, we invite you to partake with us. You do not have to be a member to, to join with us in this, but we give the cautions that scripture does. This is for Christians. So if you have not turned to be saved, scripture says you will eat and drink judgment on yourself. And then the Bible tells us to partake cautiously, having examined ourselves and not in an unworthy manner. We must repent of sin. We must turn from evil. We've all sinned this week. The Lord's Supper is for sinners, but it is for sinners who repent. It is for sinners who bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. So I'm going to give us a moment uh, for some final time of prayer, acknowledgement, confession of sin. Then I'll close us in prayer and give us some more instructions. Please pray. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND. Or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.